Hello and welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me in conversations with fearless leaders from around the world to discuss the mechanics of high performance, success, and even failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge and inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance and to go further, faster. And that conversation starts right now. Stepping into my office this week is the one and only Molly Fletcher. The word trailblazer gets thrown around a lot these days, but it's the perfect descriptor for Molly. As one of the only women in the male-dominated sports agent industry, she was called the female Jerry Maguire. During her career as a top sports agent, where she negotiated over $500 million in contracts for the biggest stars in sports, in what you could plausibly describe as a high-stakes, ego-filled world, she was really successful. These days, she's a keynote speaker, author, CEO, mom, and the host of the podcast, Game Changers with Molly Fletcher. Molly, welcome to my office. It's great to be with you, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Oh, gosh. Now, I'm so excited to uh, get this one going. You have such an inspiring story. And although our paths have never crossed in person, we actually have a really uh, a mutual great friend in Donna Fedorowicz, uh, yeah. who, yeah, me too. Uh, she was a former SVP at the PGA. And she was also, for those of you who are unfamiliar, one of the first women to be hired by the PGA uh, in the early 1990s. So Molly, you and I were both doing a couple of years ago, uh, the extended series at the PGA executive uh, women's program. So yeah. I know our, we're like ships crossing. We um, are. Yeah, never, never quite saw you in person. So this conversation feels like it's been it's overdue. Yes, yes, years in the making. But sure. enough about that. Let's talk about you uh, and your background. Because in our conversations here, I like to uh, chat with people who have just extraordinary stories, just like you, about the mechanics of high performance, success, and even failure. And you've worked with legendary, just super spectacular sports superstars and coaches from every single league. And what are some of the common characteristics? And we'll go back to exactly what it is that you did, but what are some of the common characteristics that you found that both athletes and coaches that you've represented, what they have that they've been able to sustain high performance? Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, at the highest level, the most interesting thing is that they wake up every day and try to get better, right? That you, you know, you would think athletes and coaches spend a lot of time and energy worried about winning, worried about competing, worried about the other person, worried about the other guy, gal, whatever it was. But what they really spend a lot of time doing is saying, how do I get better? Right? Like, how do I get better? And at the highest level, that is threaded through the best of the best, right? Not the people that are out on tour, but the ones that are winning championships, you know, not the guys that get drafted, but the ones that go to the Hall of Fame. It's one thing to get there. It's a whole other thing to stay there, as you're saying, right? Sort of that high performance over a long period of time. Some of the other things that come up for me is they believe in what they do and why they do it. They believe in their ability to evolve and change, right? I mean, the best of the best have to constantly pivot, tweak, adjust to stay there. I mean, John Smoltz was one of my guys. I mean, he was always, you know, tinkering around with his arm slot, tinkering around with the way he was holding his you know, the ball for this, for a slide or a change up. It was always just tinkering to play with it just to get better. You know, they take feedback. They all take feedback incredibly well. They want feedback. They love feedback. They manage their energy more than their time. The best do, right? They're, they don't get distracted in a world with, with so many things pulling on them. The best ones are very intentional about where they put their energy. You know, the best ones are incredibly disciplined. They recover really fast from tough moments, right? They, they recover quickly. And, you know, at the end of the day, right, they, they hold themselves accountable to find a way to get it done, right? To find a way, as you know, Carrie, to stick the landing. Right. Are there a few people that come to mind specifically when it comes to this idea of resilience or overcoming adversity, how they make it through that dip or maybe a really challenging incident? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I remember I had Billy Horschel on my podcast and he, 
you know, he told me, he said, Molly, you know, when Tiger was playing, he said, we all wanted to walk practice rounds with Tiger because gosh, I mean, the opportunity to play on a Monday or a Tuesday to warm up for a tournament that starts on Thursday with Tiger was pretty special. So guys would always love to do that. And Tiger would always get out at seven in the morning, right? Before everybody, anybody was out there and he wasn't bothered. And, you know, they play a practice round two and a half hours. And, you know, Billy said he was walking with Tiger and he said, hey man, look, you know, when I'm preparing for a tournament, this is what I do. He said, you know, I lay in bed, you know, on Wednesday night and I play the whole thing out in my head. You know, I play out Thursday's round. I shoot a 64. I drain every putt. You know, I'm in the fairway in regulation. Like I crush it. Do the same thing Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I, you know, drain a putt and hold a trophy over my head and I win the tournament. And Tiger goes, dude, that's awesome. He said, but do me a favor. He said, visualize yourself having to get up and down to make the cut. Visualize yourself off the rough in the fairway on one when you tee it up to start on Thursday. Visualize yourself in a trap and you got to get up and down to win it. He said, visualize yourself in tough moments and then visualize yourself recovering from those moments. And I think that's what the best do. They, they absolutely believe and visualize themselves inside of the moments that they've worked so hard for. But the best ones also visualize mentally, physically, emotionally, their ability to recover from the tough moments. And, and the more that they do that, the better they get, right? Like for, for me as an agent, I watched all of these athletes and coaches all in all the little moments, right? In the, mm -hmm. on their way to practice, struggling, you know, working through an injury, dealing with a trade, getting, thinking they're getting fired, thinking they're getting released, losing their equipment on the way to a tournament. I mean, just, I saw all the little moments, but then I would see them the next day step out on the mound or the course or the court and crush it. And not always, but generally, right? That's why they're there. And what they did so well and do so well is they, they send themselves the right messages inside of the, these tough moments. And, and they tell themselves that they can do it. They're fearless at some level, right, Carrie, in the little moments. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and those little moments turn into big moments. I mean, you probably sat in a lot of simulators and had to execute, right? And then you got out and did it for real with a, you know, with a multi-million dollar piece of equipment and did it. And so when you do it, the more and more you did it in the sim, I bet the better you got when it was, when it was real. Right. And so I saw that with great athletes, the more they'd stand over those putts and get nervous on Tuesday or Wednesday or at the practice moments, the, the stronger they were, you know, when it, when it was Thursday, Friday, and they were playing for a million bucks. Right. You know, and it's that, it's that really unique combination, I think of weaving together or the intersectionality between people who are even when they're rising to the top of their game or they're really, really good in, in their endeavor, they still stay curious. They stay humble, right? Humble enough to continue learning and they do worst case scenario it. So it's not that the visualization piece of this is something that's fluffy or touchy feely, or I don't have time for that, or no, 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 that would be a worst case scenario that that could never happen. Um, balanced with, or even wrapped with, the ability to take perspective, right? Perspective taking that when you do, you know, completely shoot an air ball or, or, you know, you strike out so many times you've, you've maybe lost count that you're able to come back in the moment, recenter and focus on what matters most instead of all of a sudden that inner dialogue going completely negative. Sure. So when, when you were representing different athletes, did you ever see, or, or was there ever a time where, and you don't have to drop a, a name as far as this is concerned, with an athlete that should have been a top performer, but maybe because they had an inner self-talker or that, that inner chatter just was a demon they just couldn't overcome? Sure. I mean, I had, you know, I mean, it's, you know, 50% of first round guys don't make it to the big leagues, only 50% mm -hmm. make it, right? And then as they get, you know, deeper in the draft, I mean, less and less make it. And I mean, these are people that are really talented, right? They're the best kids on their high school team. They're the best, some of the best kids in their town. So why don't they make it? I mean, I believe, yes, it's a lot of things, right? It's self-talk, but at the end of the day, talent just isn't enough. You know, you mm -hmm. need talent plus drive. You need talent plus recovery. You need talent plus mindset. I mean, you need all these things in addition to talent. Talent 
can get you there, but it won't keep you there. So yes, I mean, I had, you know, I had a, a big league guy who, you know, in my opinion, probably was not as disciplined as he needed to be. He was such a good mm -hmm. athlete, but the discipline wasn't there to lay off some of the pitches he was going after, right? The he was so gifted physically that at some level he overlooked the discipline that it required to execute at the big league level. And, and mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I know, I mean, discipline is an amazingly important thing to be threaded through you constantly at the highest level. I mean, it's, it's major. I had a golfer once who, I mean, literally he just got in his head and he was, he just couldn't hit it off the tee box. I mean, he was just hitting it sideways. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't get it. He, it just, it was all in his head and it took him off tour. So absolutely it happens. And usually, right. It's, it's not physical, it's mental. Right. You know, there was right. lots of things though, that as an agent, I tried to do when I'd see these moments coming, right. I, I had a guy once who, uh, was, was struggling at the plate. He was like, Oh, for his last 24. And he was starting to get in his head. I could see him. He was losing confidence. He was getting down early for batting practice, tweaking his swing, playing with his swing. And I'm thinking, dude, there's nothing wrong with your swing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you are, a, he was an incredible athlete. He was disciplined. He was focused. He was smart. So I put a, three minute video together of just one unbelievable head after another, like one, just, just roping it to, you know, oppo field, like center field, you know, home runs, bombs, you know, just him rounding the bases, the, you know, the fans jumping off the teammates coming out of the dugout. I mean, just one ridiculous moment at the plate after another. And I said, just tonight before the game, just watch this three minute video, like just, just watch it. And remind yourself, you're good enough. You can do this. You've done this before. You belong here. And he did. He watched it. And that night he went like three for four with a bomb in the bottom of the eighth. So oh gosh. We, we have to, as business people, as leaders, at mm -hmm. some level, I think we've also got to make sure that we have the things in front of us that remind us, right, that we're good and we belong there. And that's important right. too. Right. And to have that person or mentor or tour guide that's that's your cheerleader who, when you're, you're in the ditch or when you're in that lull or, or in that cold streak can kind of pick you back up. I know, uh, a couple of years ago, I was at one of the PGA events and there was one of the golfers who had been, uh, let's just say struggling, uh, mm -hmm. putting, I saw him, I showed, I'd showed up early and it was six 30 in the morning. And for three hours in the Texas sun, he was <laughs> over there with his coach practicing and you know there's there's that and i'm not i'm not a pga level golfer so i should stay in my lane with this commentary <laughs> but but there's also that point where you're like hey like three hours in the texas sun where's the diminishing return there like sure. you're here for a reason sure. you just got to be able to go out and and set some of that stuff aside and execute but sure. but you know when when i think about your career you've had such a such a fascinating career what compelled you to actually be a sports agent because when you look back in the 90s there weren't any women in the field so what made you think oh i could totally do this like this <laughs> is going to be my jam yeah for sure i knew that i loved being around peak performers i knew that i loved building relationships and i knew i loved serving people helping them and so you know the truth is i didn't at 21 or 22 say i want to be a sports agent it, it, it sort of evolved to a place where I found myself inside of an agency doing endorsement deals and appearances. So I would bring, we had five or six clients and I would, I would bring them endorsement deals and appearances. And I was in a, it was a pure sales role, right? I was calling on companies for speaking engagements and engagements for my guys. And after a couple months, it was sort of right around when the Olympics were in Atlanta and I was driving Lenny Wilkins around to all his appearances. He was the dream team coach. And then after that, I thought, what's our plan to get more clients, right? Like, how are we expanding our roster of players? Because that's where the opportunity to make a bigger impact is, you know, and that's what I would love is the opportunity to go out and build relationships with athletes and coaches and then serve them. And so I went into the leader's office and I said, what's our plan to go get more guys, right? Like, how are we growing the business? And he said really confidently referrals, you know, and he's mm -hmm. walking through the chain of how we got our current clients. And I said, well, what if we got more aggressive? And he was, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, what if we, we you know, we, there's all these baseball players in Atlanta, down at Georgia Tech, studs coming out. I said, Georgia, minor league teams, the Braves are here. 
what if we got more aggressive? And, you know, of course, he's probably looking at me going, well, how's that going to work, right? Like, you didn't do this at that level at all and or at any level. So anyway, he blessed it and said, go ahead and put a business plan together. And, and I did. And he said, go for it. And so, you know, then I started with baseball. I would go down to Georgia Tech and lean on the fence and got to know the coach and the scouts and, you know, hitting coaches and started to sort of identify the guys that I thought were going to go high in the draft. And, you know, scouts were good to me and helped me. And I, you know, and I signed a couple guys that year and a couple more the next year. Those guys percolated through the minors. Some made it to the big, some didn't. And it just progressed really from there. So, you know, it was sometimes I like to describe it as it was a moment in life when, you know, I could have stayed right where I was and done great. I could have just continued to, to, to go get deals for the guys. But I saw more. And, you know, I think that all of us in life, right, might find ourselves in moments where we could stay where we are or we could go for more. And to me, it's always asking that question, right? How can I show up and serve and solve even better inside of the organization that I'm in? And then leaning into that. And you were a you were a collegiate athlete as well. You played tennis at a pretty high level. Do you feel like playing tennis helped you with some of those um, lessons of discipline? And even do you think that that experience and, and being so immersed in a really competitive sport let you have conversations differently with the athletes? Because even though it was a different sport, you knew what they were going through. Mm -hmm. I think it helped for sure. I mean, I wouldn't want to begin to say that, you know, being a tennis player at Michigan State is comparable to being a big league pitcher or, a, you know, an NBA coach. But it gave me perspective on the way you feel when it's five all in the third against the University of Michigan and you're serving, right? I kind of had a little bit of a sense for what it might feel like to be on the mound with, you know, the bases loaded and the bottom of the eighth, so, or nine. So, yeah, I mean, it gave me definitely a sense for the, the level of discipline, the level of intentionality, the level of focus, the physical demands uh, that, that they go through. And so for that, I'm grateful. And I, and I think being a female helped so much because, you know, I wasn't their wife, I wasn't their sister, I wasn't their mother, but I got their world and I cared and I was not like everybody else that they were hanging around with all day long, right? And I think at some level that, right. that, was, a, that was a gift. Was there, so this was, this predates the big social media push. So I'd be curious to know, because you were one of, like no other female no. sports agents. Did you right. have to deal with negative comments or any of the haters or the doubters or, or even trolling? Um, <laughs> and do you, do you think it's gotten harder with social media? Like, how do you think your experience would be different if you were coming into this today? Right. And there were no other women in this industry. Yeah, you know, no, you're right. I mean, I, I there was no social media when I started, right? I mean, I, I remember sitting with so many of my athletes saying, hey, there's this thing called Twitter, and I think right. we need to go capture your name. And I remember like Aaron Andrews looking at me going, well, what, what am I going to do with that, right? Like, why would I? Now she's got like two and a half million followers. You know? Right, right. So, you know, absolutely. I mean, I, I, there was moments where, you know, I'd be, I'd be at batting practice. I remember I was in Durham visiting a couple of my minor league guys, and I was standing behind the plate. And like three or four of my guys were in Durham. And so they all ran over during BP to talk to me about work stuff, business stuff, right? One of them needed spikes, one of them. And the manager, Rungi, was the manager at the time. He starts yelling at him, like, what are you guys doing hitting on that chick? Get to BP. And Dero DeRosa looked over at him and goes, it's my agent, relax. And Rungi was like, oh, sorry, man. So those kinds of things happened, right? Sure. And you know, I think probably like you, right? It was it was an opportunity to reframe it as a good thing. What a gift, right? All these other 23 guys are going, who is that? Oh my gosh, you have a female? That's, that's kind of cool. That's different. Like, what's that like? It, it started a conversation and gave my guys an opportunity to go, actually, man, it's really good. And here's why. Or, you know, if I was on the range with my guys at tour events, you know, there was lots of moments where they'd be like, why is your wife standing behind your bag? You know, and by the way, I thought your wife was a brunette. Like, who is that? Or yeah, I'd be walking yeah. practice on. So those things happen. But again, sure. I think it's all about the story we tell ourselves. And, right. you know, the story I chose to tell myself is this is awesome. I'm different. Mm -hmm. I need to lean into exactly who I am, 
authentically and show up in that way. And, and in fact, I was able to, you know, because of that difference, I think view their window of time as a professional athlete a little bit differently than maybe the people that I competed against. Right. You know, and I think that's such a wonderful perspective as well. I'd be curious to know, I know in the last probably four or five years with the organizations that that I've worked with, and I know we have a really similar clientele between the, you know, Fortune 500, Forbes Global 2000 corporate clientele, is that when I'm speaking with younger women, or when you're thinking about the draw into STEM fields or fields that have a really, really low number of, of female participation, that now all of a sudden you go down to the college age, you know, group of gals, and I'm starting to hear pushback from women saying, but why would I wanna be a part of that? All I hear is it's negative, or, you know, it sounds like women are really struggling there. I don't want to go there, which I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, fascinating in a, ugh, that's, yeah. that's not a great thing moment. But also if you flip that, the organizations and the companies that realize what's happening, if they look at it through a 22, 23, 25 year old perspective, is it's a great opportunity for the people who can flip the message into something positive instead of running the list down of everything negative or look how few people we have here to this could be your, your opportunity to shine. Let's get after it. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is where, you know, the word you used earlier, which is a big, I'm a big fan of curiosity because curiosity creates choices, creates an, an opportunity to view something maybe a little bit differently where, where, you know, maybe you see it as an obstacle through getting curious, you see it, huh, actually as an opportunity. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, to me, it's all about the story you choose to tell yourself. And, and at some level too, it's saying, what can I control? Control the controllables. There's, you know, there's a lot of things in life that we can't control. So what can you control? Lean into those. You know, what I find with the best athletes in the world is, is they find a way, right? Like they mm -hmm. just find a way. And th that is on us as individuals to have the discipline and the focus and the intentionality to find a way to not be the victim and say, I'm going to get curious here about what's possible and lean into that. Absolutely. And just driving that constant, uh, you know, ability to understand the situation, look at it objectively, and then, and then slide right into solutions oriented mode, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's a challenge. What's the solution? Let's, Let's whiteboard it, spitball it, whatever the case may be. But that, you know, I think uh, you've got a great TED talk. And I love the story about how you were able to live rent free for nine years, um, <laughs> which if that doesn't give people interested right now, I'm not sure what what else could. But it's a really great story of being clever and being scrappy and staying tenacious in mm -hmm. in solving a problem in a way that probably most people would have never even considered. Could you share how all of that unfolded? Cause I think it's super cool. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, you know, t I, I moved down to Atlanta with 2000 bucks and no job. And I was staying on the couch of my friend from high school's apartment. And my coach gave me the names of three people in Atlanta who taught tennis. And she said, you know, look, I know you don't want to be a tennis pro, but call these people up and maybe they'll give you some advice. And I, and I, and I always say, right. I think when you ask for advice, you get a job. When you ask for a job, you get advice. 100%, and yeah. it totally. So, so long story short, I get on the phone with this one guy and he said, you know, Molly, I don't think the manager at this one property knows this, but her pro's about to leave. He just got engaged. So he tells me where it is. I go over there. I walked in and the manager was there and I sort of said, Hey, do you have a tennis court here that you use to teach to the residents at the property? And she goes, yeah, we have this pro. He's awesome. He's been here for six years. Everybody loves him. And I'm like, dang, she doesn't know yet. Right. And I said, well, okay, cool. I said, well, look, if anything changes, let's, you know, let's stay connected, knowing that at any moment this, you know, this bomb is going to get dropped on her. And so I leave, I jump in the car, I'm driving back to my friends and I see this little, like right across the street pizza place called Perro's Pizza. And so I walked in and I said, is Mr. Perro here? And he came up and I said, Mr. Perro, do you sell a lot of pizza to that apartment complex? And he said, yeah, I mean, a, a little bit, but I don't know, not a ton. I said, Mr. Perro, there's 1,100 units over there. Like a lot of young people would love a $15 dinner. He goes, wow, yeah, you know, you're right. I said, what if you gave me like 15 or 20 pizzas for free once a month? I'll give them to people that come to the tennis clinic, get them excited about Perro's. I'll stuff the coupon in the newsletter and we'll drive traffic back. And he was like, 
I love it. I said, sweet, but I don't actually have a deal over there yet, Mr. Peril. So <laughs> I'll be back. I get my car, I go back. I call my buddy at Wilson Sporting Goods and convince him to send me a box of Wilson gear, like water bottles, keychains, t-shirts. He sends this down. I print these tennis tips I'd written for a magazine in Lansing when I was, you know, growing up there. I'd written the, well, when I was in college, I wrote these sort of little, little t- how to hit a forehand back in super fundamental basic tips. Well, the next day my box comes in from Wilson at like 1.15 and I grab it. I drive over to the property. I've got my tennis tips. I've got my Wilson stuff. And I walked in and the manager was there and I said, hey, I'm Molly. And I couldn't even get it out before she was like, you aren't going to believe this. The tennis pro came in and she's going through this whole thing, right? She found out that he was leaving. And I was like, this is incredible. This is awesome timing, right? And I'm thinking, and <laughs> I said, well, I was just dropping off this box of stuff from Wilson and these tennis tips, you know, we could put these in the newsletter to get people excited about the program and these tennis tips and these Wilson stuff. We could do like hit for prizes when people come to the program. She goes, this is so cool. This guy we had didn't do anything like this. And I was like, well, how did it work with him? Like what, you know, what, tell me about the deal. And she said, well, he taught every Tuesday night for an hour and a half. And then we gave him a little bit off his rent every month. And I said, how much? She said, we gave him 500 bucks off the rent. How much is the rent? She said, it's 850. She said, so he'd just write us a check for the difference of 350. Well, then I kind of paused. I told her about the perils deal. I said, these guys will give us pizza, da, da, da. And she's like, dude, this guy we had was great, but like he didn't do any of this. And I said, yeah, no, this is great. I said, but like, literally, I said, well, you know, but this whole like 500, 850, write a check for the difference. And she's like, yeah. I said, what if we just wave it? You know, like it'd be cleaner and easier. I could move in. We'd keep the moment. I mean, she was like, well, what? I got to go call my boss, right? And Long story short, she came out like 10 minutes later and goes, dude, you're good to go. So I lived there, Carrie, for free for nine years. It was a beautiful thing. And we, and the best part, truthfully, that I don't even know if I said this in the TED talk, but you know, we, we kept the occupancy like north of 90% inside of that window. You know, we drove traffic back to Paros. I still see Charlie probably once a week. I work out next door to Paros still today. And I see him and give him a big hug. He's, he's incredible. And, you know, so everybody won. When you get inside the head and the heart of the people you're trying to solve for or serve, to me, that's when we can really make a difference. So right. it's a powerful thing. Well, and I love the story because it's it, it was a win-win, right? It's both of right. you. It's not you trying to scrape as much value out of the temporary deal as possible, but you also did what was necessary to, to, well, first of all, find a place to live, right? right. But keep moving forward when you, you didn't have a roadmap. There wasn't a seven steps to life hack your way to free rent <laughs> for nine years, right? Sure. Um, and things were uncertain and uncomfortable. And I think I'm curious to know, and I'm sure everybody listening right now would be as well, how did you develop that confidence to just keep going, right? No matter what would happen or even to trust yourself that with the ask that you'd figure it mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I don't know, but here's a look, we could do this and this is sure. going to get us both to a most, more valuable place. How do you, how do you develop that confidence to do yeah, that? Yeah. You know, I get that question. I mean, I've always believed that confidence doesn't come from your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a result of a lot of things, right? I think it's a result of, you know, I just did a video on this the other day, but you know, my, my dad was not afraid for us, my brothers and I to be uncomfortable. You know, he wasn't afraid to, you know, I tell this story, you know, we'd be driving up to Northern Michigan and he'd say, who wants ice cream? You know, we're going to, this next two exits, we're going to stop getting ice cream. My brothers and I would be like, yeah, blue moon, you know, chocolate, whatever. (laughs) And he'd drive right by the ice cream shop and we'd be like, dad, what's up? And he was like, yeah, I was just curious what you wanted, but I'm not stopping. I mean, and like today, parents are like, you got to be kidding. No parent would do that, right? Like, they're like, do you want a double? You want a triple? Do you want chocolate sauce? Do you want sprinkles? Yeah. I mean, my dad was just like, you know, tough. And so I think, and I grew up with two older brothers who treated me a lot more like a little brother than a little sister who I spent most of my time, you know, in a swirly or in a headlock or getting pinned to the ground. And so... I think what I learned is to gain confidence at some level, you have to sort of go through some discomfort. And so Mm -hmm. 
you know, mm-hmm. anything worth having in life, right, is, is probably difficult to get there. And mm-hmm. when we think about things that are difficult to do in life, they probably require some discomfort. But if you want it bad enough, you're going to withstand the speed bumps, the no's. You know, to me, no is just feedback, and that's all it is. The other thing, too, is I think the more that you sort of suffocate the fear, the more that you navigate the speed bumps, the more that you, you know, navigate tough moments, the more confidence you build. Mm-hmm. And so I mm-hmm. think it's, it's at some level, it's confidence is built, you know, in little moments. I, with my athletes, I mean, they didn't just get confident overnight and step on the mound in Game 7 of our World Series and, and get it done. They stood on that mound in a lot of little moments all the way along, minor leagues, mm-hmm. high school, college, minor leagues, big leagues, whatever it might have been, their journey. And they built that confidence over time. And I think that we as, as business people, as individuals, we can lean into that same sort of methodology, if you will, right? Little moments of mm-hmm. being a little fearless can, can create big moments of outcome. One of my least favorite phrases that I see sprinkled around anywhere, or well, you know, again, social media, or I'll see people writing about it. And again, this is my personal opinion only. I detest the phrase, fake it till you make it. I hate it. Fake it till you make it. I hate it. Yeah. Because I feel like even particularly for women, they already kind of suffer from a lot of people from an imposter syndrome mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. issue. Sure. But I think the fake it till you make it piece, actually, it might get you a win here or there. I think your energy is much, much better spent building the competence that earns you the confidence to trust yep. you'll figure it out. I hate the phrase. I mean, on like it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up a little bit. The fake it till you make it, uh, yeah. it's... It is so toxic. I, again, yeah. you might feel differently about it. I, no, no, I'm with, I, well, no. And I think, you know, I mean, when you think about women, I, you know, I never tried to be anybody other than I was like, I never, I never tried to be like the male agents I was competing against. I tried to be me and recognize the gifts in that. Right. I wasn't trying to be somebody else. And I think in part, that's what you're saying, right, is be true to you. You don't have to fake it till you make it. Be you. Be good, but be you. Right. And and definitely that piece of it, uh, I think that there are a lot of organizations or teams where that pressure to conform is really, really intense. Um, I think more as well for me, it's that people want to skip the part of and we all we all want this, right? We all want the easiest path, the path of least resistance, least discomfort, least risk of failure or embarrassment. All of us do, right? We don't we don't got there. What's the hardest thing I could do today that could embarrass myself? Right? <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. Um, but I think that if you try to skip that step of doing the hard work of of putting the miles in, putting the laps in, putting the the time underwater on your bike, whatever the case may be, on the court then in those moments of pressure or in those times of extreme adversity or setbacks, you won't have built the foundation that gets you to the bridge of the next day of what's possible. That's my fear for people right now, that whether it's athletes, executives, managers, teachers, right? You have to be able to figure out a way to grind through Mm -hmm. difficult. So Mm -hmm. do you have um, specific actions or even tactics that you use with your clients, the people you serve, even your kids? Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a mantra, something to get them just through that inertia of the uncomfortable phase. And I'm going to call it a phase because eventually the discomfort ends. (laughs) Sure. Right. Right. Good, bad, or otherwise it's going to end. You know, I think there's like, there's a couple ways to answer this question. One is super high level in the sense that you got to know why you're doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to have a purpose statement, a mission statement as an individual, because I think that helps you come out of the grind and know why you're doing it. Right. Like when my, you know, when, when, when you know, when I'm getting on a, the fourth flight of the week to go to another event, I, I know why, but I have to remind myself, this is to lead, inspire and connect with courage and optimism. Right. And maybe I'm a little tired at that moment but I got to get my head right because I, and I do that by going back to my purpose. If you know why you do what you do, 
you can do about anything, right? I, t I tell a story sometimes about if I laid a plank over top of two high-rise buildings, I sometimes tell this story at keynotes, if, if I laid a plank over top of two high-rise high buildings and if it was an inch and a half thick and a foot and a half wide and it dipped a little in the middle, the two buildings were, let's say, 500 feet high and 500 feet apart. And I always ask, right, like how many people would walk across that plank to the other side for a million bucks? And by the way, like it dips in the middle, 80% of the people make it, but there's no net. So if you don't make it, it's over, right? Like, and like literally two or three people out of a thousand, let's say that, that you know, five, 10 people, two or three, raise their hand. And then I go, okay, what about two and a half million? How many people would do it? And I get a few more hands, right? Okay, five million, how many would do it? I get a few more hands, but still it's always less than 10% of the room. And then I say, how many people of you, how many of you would walk across the other side if the people who mattered the most to you in your life were on the other side and the only way you could save them is you walked across? Everybody raises their hand. So in other words, when we know why we do what we do, we, it changes what we do. And so that to me is an important consideration. And then I think tactically, what's happening in our world right now is people are burned out. They're, they're either burned out or they're approaching burnout. They're exhausted, mm -hmm. they're drained. They're, they're living at home and working at home. And it's just, it is a lot. And the impact that it's had on women in particular is devastating, right? Because women are, are finding themselves making choices because of the level of fatigue at some level, burnout, demand. And, and, and when demand exceeds capacity at the most basic level over a long period of time, it's just not sustainable. So tactically, one of the things I encourage people to do is to say, what, what gives you energy? What, what, really, what really lifts you up, gives you energy? Write those four or five things down. And it, it might be walking the dog. It might be, you know, sitting in the, you know, you know, living room, talking to your kids at night. It might be, you know, playing golf or riding your bike, whatever it is, write it down and then make sure that one, two, three of those things are in your calendar every day. Like mm -hmm. literally protect that time in your calendar so that nobody can get it. And then pull back and say, what drains your energy and how can you minimize, delegate, you know, tighten up the things that really just, you see them on your calendar and you're like, no, I don't want to do this. How do you tighten that up, delegate it, minim whatever it might be? Because if we don't fill our cups up, we can't pour from an empty cup. And over a long period of time, which is what's happened to people right now, they're, they're, they're doing things that really drain them over a long period of time. And that's just not sustainable. So we have to be intentional about saying what, what fills you up, protect that time tactically every day and get that in, get that walk in, get that whatever in that gives you energy. It's fascinating. Uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman has done some podcasts on even, and I'm, I'm going to gob this up a little bit, but it's essentially the science behind what happens optically to your eyes and your brain when you go outside and and what your eyes the movement right. of your eyes and scanning back and forth and it, it all it has to be is for 15 or 20 minutes mm -hmm. how that can recenter and ground and it actually calms your brain mm -hmm. um which i find fascinating from a science and a research perspective because for those of us and and you know who winter's approaching and now we're going to find ourselves even you know maybe in super extreme conditions or it's 20 below or maybe we right. live in a city or whatever the case may be we work a night shift and you're like, I'm just going to hop on my treadmill or I'm going to do an in-home workout, right? If that's your, your stress reliever. And that doesn't actually scientifically give you some of the same benefits, different benefits for sure, that simply being outside provides you, which I find yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah. You, yeah. you have a new book out, uh, relatively new, uh, within this year, uh, called The Energy Clock. And you address in that the importance of saying no, um, which thank you for saying yes to this podcast, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> um, but was there was there a specific instance that you learned the value of saying no, or where you're like, holy cats, that like yeah. now I'm filled with resentment, or maybe was there an yeah. instance that drove you to that? There was a couple moments, right, that kind of got me to where I, I. Uh, at some level, I remember my parents flew down to Atlanta to see me when I was like in my mid to late 20s. They came down to Atlanta to see me and I was single. I was so excited. They lived in Michigan. I, they were coming down and, you know, to 
hang out and I was going to show him around the city and just for two days. And so I picked him up the airport and we went to this great restaurant for lunch. We were sitting outside. It was a beautiful day and we're having lunch and literally we sit down and it was just, it was one phone call after another. I mean, it was mm -hmm. one athlete after another, one call, one moment, one situation, you know, coach worried about he's getting fired. You know, a baseball player thinks he's getting traded. I mean, uh, it, it was just one thing after another. And I took every single call. Like I was completely not present for my parents who I was so excited were there. And, you know, I, I remember my mom looked at me and, and she said, what do they all want? And why do they have to talk to you right now? And of course, I thought I was saving lives at this time, right? So I go right at her. I'm like, oh, he thinks he's getting traded. His clubs didn't get to the tournament. He thinks he's getting, you know, he's got this other job he's interested in. I'm going right. And, but it was a moment when I realized, you know, I could have, because I over-indexed on my guys, I always poured into mm -hmm. them. If they would have gone to voicemail for that one hour, I could have been totally present with my parents and I could have gotten back to my apartment and, and, and called all those guys right back. And they wouldn't have fired me for it, right? So, you know, and, and, and there was another moment later in my life, my girls were, you know, we had three kids in 12 months, which is a whole nother story, but we have, I think they were like six, six and seven. And it was a week where they were young, my husband's working, my mom flies down to kind of help with the girls that week. And I'm like Miami, Vegas, Dallas, San Diego for keynotes. And I remember calling my mom in tears. And I was like, mom, I miss the girls. I miss my husband. I'm just like, this is just too much. And, and long story short, when we got home, I created some systems to ensure that I said no more so that I could manage my calendar, manage my energy at some level better. So I think at the, at the highest level, the thing I try to sort of share is that clarity is the key, right? If we have clarity around the things in our lives that matter most, then we have to have the discipline to say no. So it, it starts with that level of clarity and then the discipline to say no to the things in our lives that, that don't align with what matters most. And so people always talk about life and, and sort of balance in life. To me, balance is a byproduct of clarity. And then we've got to have the discipline to say yes and no. And the story I tell myself is when I'm saying no to something, I'm saying yes to my kids, to my husband, to my brothers, to my parents, to my community, to whatever it might be. And so that's the shift, right, is, is I'm saying no to this, but I'm actually saying yes mm -hmm. to something I already got clear on matters more. Right. And that's, that's one thing I think even, and you know, I've suffered from it and I know everybody sure. you know, listening has, and I would imagine you have as well, you know, you go through these periods of time where, where you might get lost in the chaos and you forget to just take a second to reflect on or think about intentionally, you know, what does success look like for me? What does it look like for my family or for my loved ones? Not what everybody else says, we should be doing right. um you know and there are a lot of people and there's been a lot of disruption in the last 18 months that maybe maybe has put a more clarifying lens on that in in good ways and in bad ways but that idea of being mindful enough to take a hot second to say you know what this this is what success looks like for me so right now maybe the market is hot or people are telling me i need to scale the business right now is not the time, right? Maybe mm -hmm. I have young kids, maybe I'm a caretaker or somebody's saying, you need to level up, throw in for the promotion, or you should go work in a nonprofit space, whatever the case may be. I think if we, if all of us took a little more time to actually listen to our hearts a little bit and, and look at the environment and go, what does success look like for me? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a filter that then lets you filter out the unnecessary, right? Focus on that work or, or those people that yeah. matter most, yeah. right? That yeah. then can put you into a place where, where you can build some resiliency or you can be, you can actually start feeling gratitude or a little more grateful for the circumstance that you're in. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think it was Brene Brown. Um, I think I, I think I heard her say several years ago, something, something along the lines of being able to figure out when you say no, the discomfort for a moment rather than the resentment for a long time, Some, mm. something, 
I, I'm mm, sure she said cool. it in a much better way. But it's it's about <laughs> being brave enough to be uncomfortable for a, a couple of minutes or that pushback so that you're not swallowed by the resentment of the fact that you said yes. Right. And I mean, yeah, that, that that's such a great, I mean, she's a remarkable woman, right, who says things so, so, so well. And, you know, it always feels a little uncomfortable in that moment. But again, if you've gotten clear on what matters most, then to her point, you can be a little uncomfortable for a minute. But, you know, and, and I think that happens, right? So often, business people are going to a meeting or they're getting on a conference call or they're going to a cocktail party or they're going to an event and they're like, why am I here? I don't want to be here. Well, why did you say yes? In the first, you know, they're, they're, it's so interesting in life. People just, these meetings come through and they accept, 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 accept. That's the moment you've got to look at that and go, wait a minute, what do I have going on that day? Why am I just, we can't just accept things, right? We want to understand what it is. Do you really need to be in that meeting? Could someone right. else handle that? Right. Or is that, in fact, where you should spend your time and energy, which it very likely could be. But we want to be clear. We want to be intentional about the yeses. Right. I think we've got a lot of leadership challenges ahead of us, actually, culturally, from not only the executive space, the manager space in retail, supply chains, all of this stuff right now, when we've had um, this large cohort of people who've been able to work from home or work from anywhere, and now even are starting to go back to work, back into physical office space presence, and now they're on Zoom calls. Mm -hmm. And that's, there are yeah. gonna be some tough conversations. How do you stop draining your energy or what What do you do? You said you, you have some stuff that you put into place. What do you do to stop doing the unimportant? One of the things that I do is I, you know, every kind of toward the end of every week, I go out into the next week and I go out like 30 days even sometimes, and I just protect time. I protect, mm -hmm. you know, I protect some mornings for workouts. I protect some afternoons. I, 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 the first things that go into my calendar, I guess is a better way to say it, is, is my kids' volleyball, my daughter's basketball schedule, my lunch with my husband on our anniversary, the time when my daughter's coming back from college for two days. I go grab that time and protect it as quick as I get get a clarity around it so that nobody can come and take it, right? And, yeah. and, and, and grab yeah. that time. Then, then my team can fill in, right? Other things around those things, but then I'm not doing something that I, sh when I should be somewhere else. And so, you know, to me, it's, it's looking at our calendars through the lens of energy. Right, looking mm -hmm. at our calendars through the lens of the things in our lives that matter most, and then protecting that time. You know what? I, what I found so interesting, really, was when I was an agent, I would sit with, for example, my golfers, and I would sit down with them, and I would say, "All right, let's look at what we did last year, where we played well, where we made cuts, where we missed cuts, the majors, all that." And then we would back into their schedule for the year based on the majors and the tournaments that they played well in. So we would go, okay, we want to play well at the Masters, we want to peak at the US Open, we want to peak. So if we know that, then how are we going to manage everything else around that, right? So the majors to me are my family, my kids, right? Those are the majors. So mm -hmm. everything else is going to back out from there to be inserted in and sort of so that I can peak, if you will, like my golfers in the right moments. And that's the thing, you know, sometimes we accept all these meetings, we find ourselves in all these things, and then we get to that four o'clock big pitch, big sales call, big conference call, big moment with our boss, whatever it is. And we've been in all these unimportant things the two, three hours prior, and we don't have the energy or the focus for the four o'clock meeting that actually is the most important meeting of the week. You know, and this is just about intention. It's about discipline. It's about anticipation, right? It's about things like that. And there's some people listening going, look, lady, I don't have that much control over my calendar, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm not a leader. I don't control... And, and my thing is, okay, cool. Could you manage up a little bit, right? Could you manage up a little bit to say, hey, these are really important to me and I want to try to be at these things and, and I'll make it up here or here or here, but I really want to be at this play for my daughter at 3.30 on Thursday. And so can we anticipate? So it's, it's pulling back and saying, how do I look at my time and my calendar through the lens of energy, through the things that matter most to me, 
and then live into that. Right. And and you're right. There, there are plenty of people who are listening who do shift work or they don't have that much time blocking um, flexibility in their schedule, if you will. But then that means you have to be even more careful on, mm-hmm. on what you are in the free time that you do have, uh, how you're filling that well, how are you distracting yourself? How are you feeding yourself? How are sure. you spending time with your family? All yeah. of that stuff actually comes into play. And don't be afraid to be the one to raise your hand and say, I actually can't stay late today. Mm-hmm. I have a family obligation. You'd right. be surprised how much respect you yes. earn from people to be. And then everyone yeah. else starts backing up too, going, hey, on Tuesday, I can't be here yeah. either. Yeah. Right. And you're like, yeah, where were you guys? You well, know, and I think we're I- getting into this world with this, with the virtual world where, you know, I'm hearing from a lot of people. I mean, if you do your job, if you execute against the things that mm-hmm. are aligned with your priorities, whether you do them at 7.30 in the morning or whether you do them at 8.30 at night so that you can do, I mean, I think I'm hearing more and more leaders are, are having to get a little bit more comfortable with that because people are saying, I, I don't know if I want to go back to the office. Right, right. And that's definitely a leadership challenge uh, because it's a sure. different skill set, not only managing virtually, but managing no uh, what feels like invisible, right? Yep. Um, and for all of us, who are on the other side of, of that uh, that webcam, if you will, being really, really honest with ourselves, not conflating or confusing our busy time with our being effective time, mm-hmm. right? Well, Molly, I know we're kind of coming up to the end of our time. Do you, do you have just a couple of minutes to do a couple of fun rapid fire questions? I'm in, I'm in, let's do it. Perfect. You, you know what, before we do that, I actually have one other quick question. How connected are you still and do you still watch what other agents are doing right now? I mean, I'm connected to the sports space at a high level, and I'm still connected okay. with some of my players as a friend, but I'm not spending a lot of time worried about what other agents are doing now. I'm curious because I still have friends that are uh, in the coaching space, D1 coaches, and I would assume that most of your representation in the past focused on negotiating contracts and less on negotiating endorsements. But now, just in the last few months, there are clearly spectacularly uh, lucrative endorsement deals, not just for pro athletes, but also for college athletes as well, because the NCAA approved the the name image likeness policy. Yeah. Do you worry at all about the direction that's going? Maybe a soft phrase would be, uh, or, or grouping like a not necessarily qualified agents preying on these young athletes? Yes, I mean, but that's been an issue even with certified agents, right? Is is making sure that these guys and gals align themselves with good character people, right? I mean, I think whether they're certified or not, you're gonna get an array of character inside of that sphere, right? Right. You know, it's changed. I mean, at, at, at some level now, college football is the minor leagues for the NFL. It's a completely different business model now. You know, when you've got a quarterback making a million bucks off the field and he's 18 or 19, what what does that, you know, it's the minor leagues, right? For the NFL, mm-hmm. that's what it is. And so, you know, there's good and bad with all of that. And I think everybody kind of has their own opinion of it, but it definitely changes the scope of what college sports is. Right. No, it's fascinating. It's, I'm sure we're years away from even trying to figure out what some of those um, consequences are, or even sure. some of the benefits of right. all of that. So yeah. culturally, from a teamwork perspective, individually, college graduation rates, yep. all of that. Yep. Gonna be, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting white paper, uh, one of which I will not <laughs> be the author of, but I'll be, I'll be interested to read. All right, well, let's slide into the rapid fire questions real quick. What is your go-to music you listen to when you work out? Go-to music when I listen to that I listen to when I work out. Well, you know, I listen to podcasts from time to time uh, when I work out. But you know, I'm a country music girl. You know, I'll, I'll get a little Mitchell Tenpenny. I'll get a little Blake Shelton. I'll get a little you know Kane Brown, uh, Chase Rice. Right, so. I'm a, uh, I'm a country music girl now that I'm down in Atlanta. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're buried in the SEC. That's for sure. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Who do you think of as a mentor and what did you need to learn from them? 
You know, my philosophy on mentors is that they're all over the place and they're everywhere we turn, we can learn and grow and get better. And so I find that I learn from so many people all the time and I'm so grateful for that. I think of, you know, my my hard and fast long-term mentors are my mom and dad without question. I lean into them always. They're this voice of truth. I think for all of us in life, it, it's so important to have a group of people around us that will tell us the truth, right? That, that, that have absolutely no agenda, <laughs> but to help us show up as our best selves. And to me, you know, that's, you know, my mom and dad, that's my husband, that's my brothers, you know, my friends. And, and to me, they know me well, and they're not afraid to give me tough feedback. And for that, I'm super grateful. You know, other mentors, I mean, as much as I was representing some of my guys and gals, they, they taught me so much. You know, Tom Izzo, I just, he, he's an incredible human being. I mean, he's an incredible basketball coach, but he's an even better guy. You know, Smoltzy, great baseball player, but a better guy. Ernie Johnson Jr., I mean, unbelievable at what he does on TNT, but he's a better guy. I have learned a lot from them um, that I have leaned into in my own life to try to show up as my best self. I love that. I love that. And such a diverse group too, right? I'm sure the insights were crazy all over the map on that one. What is the biggest misperception of you? The biggest misperception is probably that, um, you know, I'm tougher than I am. I mean, I, I'm, you know, my kids would tell you, my husband would tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a softie at heart, you know, I, I cry and, and I talk to my parents one or two times a day. I'm 50 years old. They're 85 and 80. I mean, I work a lot and I work hard, but there is nothing more important to me than my, my three daughters and my husband. They are the center of my universe. I mean, I said to my daughter the other day, I said, somebody asked me on a podcast, what do you wish your mom would do differently? And I said, what would you say? And she said that you didn't love us so much that you weren't in our world so much. And I think that, um, you know, I do, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, locked in on, on those girls. And I don't think that's necessarily a misconception, but I'm probably a little bit more of a homebody and a family gal than maybe, than maybe the world would see. Sure. Well, and that's the social media part of it, right? Or just by nature of what we both do, you're, you know, you might be on stage with in front of, 18,000 people at 10 o'clock in the morning. And by eight o'clock at night, you're at home and you're jamming his hair up, makeup off. Yeah. Or you're picking them up from school or you're turning a load of laundry or you're totally emptying the dishwasher, wishing somebody else did it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you have a foot on two different circus horses going full blast at the same Uh, time. uh, I know. Sometimes I'll hang up from a keynote and I'll run upstairs and turn a load of laundry if it's a virtual keynote. Then I'll come down and I'm like, jump on a podcast and run up and empty the dishwasher, come back down. I'm like, man, if people knew. Super glamorous. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So who plays you in a movie? You know, Reese Witherspoon, probably. I mean, people always say, man, you kind of, you guys kind of resemble each other, which I wish I resembled Reese Witherspoon, but um, people always, I I would probably say Reese Witherspoon. That'd be a good choice. That would be a good choice. So your last easy question would be, we have $100, a full tank of gas, and the day off, where are we going? A hundred dollars, a full tank of gas. Where are we going? This is a great one. You know, we're probably going, uh, we're going to go on a hike, maybe a good, good walk. We're going to grab a quick cup of coffee. Now we're down to 90 bucks. Maybe I talk you into going to a simulator and show me how to fly an airplane. My brother's at Delta, so he could hook us up. Maybe we grab lunch at my club for 40, 50 bucks. Now we're down to what? 40 bucks. And then we go grab a $40 bottle of wine and just shut it down for the day. And we probably don't oh, need anything perfect. else to eat because wine can perfect. substitute for food just fine. Well, maybe we'd have to go get like a, a free pizza. There you go. Good call. I'll call my boy <laughs> at Pharaoh's. I'll call my boy at Pharaoh's and we'll get a free pizza. That's right. Introduce me. Introduce I don't, me to I don't need much friend. money. I don't need much money. I just getting, getting outside, getting a little hike in, learning from you would be fun. Oh, same, same. Well, Molly, it's been such a pleasure. And your newest book, The Energy Clock, is available and it's out now. Also, if people want to get in touch with you, maybe book you, find out more about you or listen to your podcast, where can they find you? 
Sure. MollyFletcher.com is a great place to start. And that'll take you to my podcast, to, to other things. And we created a special code for your audience to check out our monthly coaching program. If they type in office, capital O-F-F-I-C-E, they can get $10 off and join our little community. But MollyFletcher.com is a great place to start. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Molly. I really appreciate you and thank you for sharing your experiences. It's been a pleasure today. It's a pleasure, Carrie. Thank you for what you do. You're awesome. Ah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening this week. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation today, I'd love if you left us a review. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. And more fearless leaders, just like you, will be able to discover us. And while you're at it, I'd love to connect with you over on my social channels, or you can find me at carrylorenz.com as well. Finally, don't forget to grab your copy of my new book, Span of Control, on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, Target, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite indie bookstore. I know it'll really be helpful to you, your family members, friends, even the teams you lead or coach to help identify their priorities, focus on what matters most, and find success even during times of chaos, uncertainty, and change. So thank you again for sharing your time with me today. I'm glad you're here.